Turn to John 1 with me, if you will, tonight. The New Testament is about a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. He was born a Jew in the land of Israel to poor parents. He worked most of his life as a carpenter, just an ordinary job, an ordinary seeming man. But he was anything <clears throat> but ordinary. Seven centuries... <coughs> I may need some water. Wow. <clears throat> Let's try this again. Seven centuries before he was born, the prophet said, and his name shall be called Wonderful. And everything about Jesus' life was wonderful. He was born as no man had ever been born before. He was, <clears throat> he lived as no man had ever lived before. He was born of a virgin. He lived sinlessly for 33 years. He did things that no one else had ever done. He walked on water. He spoke to a man who was in his grave and the man got up and walked out. He touched a leper and the leper's skin came again. He caused those who had missing body parts to be made whole. Matthew 15, 30, those who were maimed. Jesus said words that no one had ever heard before. His enemies sent officers to arrest him and they listened as he spoke and they left without arresting him. And when they went back, they were asked the inevitable question, why have you not brought him? And they said, never man spake like this man. John 7, 46, thank you. Never man spake like this man. When Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he said, Master, we know, or Rabbi, we know thou art, a, thou art from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. John 3, 1 through 5. The prophet, again, back to the same passage we referred to earlier, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, said, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. In that simple statement, we have the earthly and future of Jesus outlined in three simple phrases. Unto us a child is born. That's the cradle. There's the virgin birth. Unto us a son is given. There's the cross, the offering for sin. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. There's the crown that he wears tonight. The cradle, the cross, the crown. A summary of Jesus' life in three simple phrases. We are looking at the whole Bible in one series of lessons. And when you look at Scripture, if you can remember what each finger of one hand stands for, you can re remember an outline of the Bible. There is one theme to the Bible, the salvation of man through Christ to God's glory. Doesn't matter you're reading Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis or Galatians, Romans or Revelation, you're reading about the salvation of man through Christ to God's glory. There are two divisions to the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We studied the Old Testament yesterday. Tonight and tomorrow night, Lord willing, we will study the New Testament. There are three dispensations of Bible history. Dispensation just refers to a period of time that a law is kept or is in force. And those three Bible dispensations are the patriarchal dispensation, 
You hear the word patriarch or father. That's when God spoke to the fathers, 2,500 years, the earliest years of human history. And then the middle dispensation, the Mosaic dispensation, God gave to Moses his law. Moses gave it to the people. They kept that for the first written law. They kept it for 1,500 years. I say kept it. They were under it for 1,500 years, but no man ever kept it. Perfectly save one man. And he is the one we speak of tonight, who lived under the law no one could keep, but he kept it. Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. The third dispensation is the Christian dispensation. It began at the cross, and it extends all the way to Jesus' returns to take his people home and to take all men of the judgment day. We are in that dispensation tonight. So we are thus under the New Testament as the law of the land or of the kingdom of God during the time that we live. There are four sections to the New Testament. I'll come right back to those, but let me give you in review the five sections to the Old Testament that we mentioned yesterday. 512, 5512, you remember that number scheme? 512, 5512. Five books of law, 12 books of history, five books of poetry, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets, 512, 5512. If you could remember that, then whenever you're reading through the Bible, you know when the genre changes or when the, whether it's prose or history or poetry or prophecy, just by knowing that simple number scheme. Now we go back to the four, one, two, three, four, four sections of the New Testament, which we'll be studying tonight and tomorrow night. Let me give it to you. It's just as easy to remember as the Old Testament, maybe easier since there's one less number, 4-1-21-1. That is Simple, sticks in your mind when you hear it, 4-1-21-1. There are four biographies of Jesus. We'll study those tonight. There's one book of history of the church. That's the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. <clears throat> then there are 21 letters or epistles. The first section of those letters were written to churches. The middle section was written, were written to, was written to individuals, uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And then the last section are general epistles, which were written to, uh, written just to the church in general, to the world in general. And then the one, 4-1-21-1, one book of prophecy in the New Testament. That's the book of Revelation. And it talks about, it's almost like you see uh, the, the road of revelation has been going on now since Moses. Long time, but now we've reached the end of it. The last one to receive information from God to write down for humanity in the Bible was John the Apostle. And John writes the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, God extends for about 200 years His revelation of what's going to happen to His people. There's going to be a brutal persecution of his people, but they will come out of it. And of course that came to pass with the Roman Caesars who persecuted the, the church in 10 separate persecutions over those 200 years. And it was brutal. Uh, the Council of Nicaea occurred in AD 325 and elders and preachers went to that. And I read somewhere that almost all of them a small percentage of them did not, were not missing a hand, an eye, or walking with a limp because they had been brutally persecuted. But they won the Roman Empire. What happened did? It, it failed, but the church continued. And that small stone that Daniel saw struck the image, Daniel 2. And the image was pulverized and blew away in the wind, and then that small stone grew. Well, that small stone's the church. And it outlasted human government. World ruling empires came and, and went, but the church came to stay. It's the eternal kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. All right, let's go to John 1 now. Let's a simple review, but I think it's important to review. So we've covered so much in a short amount of time. It helps us to remember the, the highlights, the most important parts. So let's go to John 1 and let's talk about 
The first four of 12 New Testament verses, the balance tomorrow night, that summarize the entire New Testament. There are 7,957 verses in the New Testament. I said 59 yesterday, so correct your notes. 7,957 verses in the New Testament. But you can summarize that, those 8,000 almost verses if you know 12 verses or if you've marked them. I took the time to write them uh, this afternoon in my Bible on the page that has the New Testament on it. The New Testament in 12 verses, colon, and then I listed the verses. I have them committed to memory now, but I might forget them later and they'll always be there. And you might want to do that at some point in this series tonight or tomorrow night or after that. But we only look at four tonight. And these 12 verses cover four topics. I'll give you a map of where we're going in this study. They cover Jesus. That's our study tonight. Then they study the church, then they cover the church, then Christianity, and then eternity. Those four ideas are the four chief ideas of the New Testament. But let's look at just four verses in the balance of our time tonight. Starting in John 1:14. That's our first verse of the 12. John 1:14. And the key word is incarnation. You see, you see or hear the word carnal in that incarnation, is, that's the root of it. What does it mean? It means that Jesus became flesh. He became one of us. So let's read what John 1:14 has. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you wanted to outline that verse, you could do it this way. His coming and the Word became flesh. His staying and dwelt among us. He stayed about 12,000 days, 33 years. He didn't do as presidents do. You know, there's a hurricane, there's some catastrophe, and they fly in on Air Force One and they get out and they, they pose for the pictures and they survey the damage. They get back on the plane and they fly back to safety and comfort and leave the people. I'm not critis being critical of that. There's little they could do physically, personally. But that's not the way Jesus visited. He didn't just come down here and survey and go right back to heaven. He came down here and lived among us. He was one of us. And almost all of his life, for the first 30 years of 33 years, he was just a common, ordinary man at least as others saw him, he came into his own, his own received the night. They didn't recognize him. The creator of the world lived down the street from, from those people in Nazareth and they did not know who, who that boy was that was growing up, Joseph and Mary's oldest son. His coming, his staying, his character. That's the last part of that verse. Full of grace. Full of truth. Two words to sum up one perfect life, grace and truth. I want to look with you in John 8 as we illustrate, we'll see an illustration of his dual personality or character there. But before you turn there, I'll just go back to verse 1 in, of John. Each one of the gospel accounts begins, well, two of them begin at the same place and the other other two at different places. Matthew and Luke begin with the birth of Jesus. Mark begins with the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. But John goes back beyond. He goes back all the way to eternity. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. Capital W. Personal. The one we know as Jesus was before he was Jesus known as the Word. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have His eternality there. In the beginning, He was already here. You also have His personality there. He was with God. That is, God the Father and God the Son are two different personalities. The Godhead is composed of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So you have His personality singular and different from the other two. And then you have his nature. He was God. 
Not was a God with a little g, as one version translates it, but God with a capital G. He was as divine as the Father and had all characteristics that the Father had. He possessed those omnis, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, integrity. All those are characteristics of of deity. He had them all and had them as much or to the nth degree. Now, let's see this full of grace and truth. When the Word became flesh, we, we knew Him as Jesus, a name, Old Testament name, Joshua. It, it just means Jehovah saves. It was a common name. It's even a common name today. You'll find uh, in the Spanish community, many people even today name Jesus or, or Jesus, but not, not like Jesus. I mean, he, he wore the name as others did, but He fulfilled it completely because He was the Savior of the world. He lived up to the name. Now, in, in John 8, we find that Jesus has made enemies. They're jealous of Him. They're envious of Him. They want to take Him out of the public eye. And so they have been contriving different ways to do that. And this, this day, they've come up with this, with some bait to put in the trap. And Jesus is teaching the Feast of Tabernacles has just ended, so there's a large crowd still in Jerusalem. And he goes down in verse 2, and early in the morning came to the temple, and the people came, and he sat down to teach them. So you picture something like what's going on here tonight. There's a crowd, there's a speaker. Jesus is teaching, and there's a commotion in the back. Have you been in a service before when there was a commotion? Uh, I was in a service one time when someone had a medical emergency, and you know, the, the medical professionals came right into the service and got her out of there and into the ambulance. And, you know, you just can't preach when stuff like that's going on. You just wait. And sometimes there'll be a commotion back there, people coming in later or something. And people are, you know, they're, they're, they want to turn around and see what's back there. You know, what's going on? Well, imagine this day when Jesus is teaching crowds looking at him. But behind them, there's, there are all these people coming in, these men. And there's one woman. And she's, she's not coming of her own volition. She's being prodded or dragged or carried. It says in verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And they say in the next verse, in the very act. So we might ask, what was she wearing? Perhaps she's wrapped the bedclothes around her as she was surprised by these men who have apprehended her to bring her to this place? What does she look like? Is her face red? Is she sweating? Is she downcast trying to cover her face? I suppose those things would all be true. But they have somehow urged her, pushed her, dragged her up to Jesus' feet. Now everybody, of course, is focused on what's going on rather than what Jesus had been doing, teaching. And they say to him, and I'll just summarize, this woman was caught in adultery and the law says she should be stoned, but what do you say? Now, verse 6 says that they were not sincere about this. They weren't honoring the law. They were tempting him. They thought that either way he went, he would have to take a side on a mounting controversy, a continuing controversy in the Jewish community about divorce and about adultery and about being compassionate or, or being true to the law. And, and they figure either way they've got him. Some people are going to not respect him after he makes his call But Jesus just stoops down on the ground and starts to rot. That's the only thing Jesus ever wrote, as far as we know, while he was on earth. And the passing feet soon erased it. So we don't know what it was, but if we might speculate, I wonder if he wrote Leviticus 20.10, the law on adultery under which she lived and they lived. Or maybe Deuteronomy 21 
21, 22, 21 to 24. Extended passage that dealt with different sexual sins between married people or unmarried people or betrothed people, but that passage would also apply. Or I wonder if he wrote the names of the accusers. John 2.25 says he did not need men to reveal what was in their minds. He knew what was in men's minds, right? So he could have given first, last name, street address, marital status, number of children and dependents, age. So maybe he was taking names. Or maybe he wrote G-R-A-C-E in the dirt. And then under it, T-R-U-T-H. Because that's what he's going to demonstrate. To fast forward, they keep peppering him with a question. Are you going to answer us? What, 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 what's, your, what's your verdict? And so Jesus stands up and he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he breaks eye contact and stoops down and starts writing again. And I suppose a silence fell over that crowd. And maybe some smiles in the audience of the people who were listening. And the oldest one, maybe hair thinning on top gray, maybe a little stoop shoulder. Now, they're, they're in a public place in the temple. I don't think there were any rocks in there, but they were intent on stoning her, so I suppose they brought their rocks with them. Do you? It's at least possible that the first one said, the oldest one. Thud. Guys, I'm going home. And out the door he goes. And then another yeah, me too. I'm thud. And then others, thud, 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 thud. And finally, the youngest, hot-bloodedest, angriest one of all of them? Well, nobody's going to stand with me. I guess I got to go too. And out the door he goes. The woman, Jesus, the crowd. And he asked her, where are your accusers? She responds, no man, Lord. I suppose her voice was an octave higher than it usually was. Short of breath. I mean, she came this close to being stoned to death. Not a pleasant thought. They did not mean for her to go home. They meant for her to go to the cemetery. No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, this is verse 11, Neither do I condemn thee. Why are we studying this? Full of, what was that word? Grace. You could write that above that phrase. Neither do I condemn thee. What is that? That's grace. And truth. The last part says, Go and sin no more. Jesus is not telling her, go back to your lover. He's not, he's not saying you can continue in that relationship that dishonors God and yourself and your family and your community and your religion. He said, I'm giving you a second chance on life. Make the most out of it. And you know, whenever someone responds to the love and the grace of God, if it's in a service like the one tonight, someone walks down an aisle and they say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And we all rejoice with that confession. And they're immersed in water and all their sins are washed away. You know, that's grace. That's a second chance on life. That's, that's a sinner being salvaged from the devil's trash heap and placed in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3. And made a child of the King. But they don't go back to the trash heap. They don't go back to the lifestyle and the sins that dishonored them and God and their family and all the things that we just named. 
Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus is full of grace, full of truth. Second verse, John 3, 16. So back into the same book. Let's go to what is called the golden text of the Bible. Sometimes called the Bible in miniature, the greatest verse of the Bible. And it is a verse of superlatives. You, you could probably quote it, so you can read it or quote it along with me, but let's see the superlatives in this verse. It's an amazing verse. For God, there's the greatest being, so loved. That's the greatest emotion. The world, that's the greatest number. That He gave, that's the greatest act of which man is capable. His only begotten Son, the greatest gift ever given, that whosoever, the greatest number, believeth the greatest requirement, for it is the first and the foundation of all obedience. Hebrews 11, 6. Should not perish our greatest fear, but have everlasting life, our greatest hope. All that in one verse. Was that 25 words, 113 letters, four phrases, one verse? But what a verse. If John 1.14 taught us about incarnation, then John 3.16 teaches us about salvation. Because salvation is not man-centered. It was not the genius theory that some religious leader came up with. No, this, this was hatched in the mind of God before the world was even created. Here God said, I have a plan. When Adam and Eve seen in the garden as we studied yesterday, he did not wring his hands and say, oh, what are we going to do now? No, God said, as we studied, the seed of woman would bruise the serpent's head. Well, we know now that that meant Calvary. God already had it all planned out. For God so loved the world. That's the motivation. You know, God's love was not manifest. He didn't say, I love you so much, I'll send you a, a bouquet of heaven's flowers. He didn't say, I love you so much, I'll give one of my angels for you. He did not say, I love you so much, I'll give a, a species of animals that I created. No. He searched through, as we sometimes sing, and found the very jewel of heaven and offered His own Son, His only begotten Son. And John 3.16 says that. But I was reading today in Galatians, and Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave Himself for us. You put those two verses together, and you have the gift that God made. He gave His Son. Now, if you have children, could you imagine giving your child so that someone else might live? But can you imagine the child saying, I'm willing to do it? God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And what's so beautiful about that is that there was no other sacrifice that, would, that could save man. Blood and bulls and goats could not do it, Hebrews 10, 4. Man could not save himself, Jeremiah 10, 23. God could not overlook sin because he's just and holy and cannot allow sin to be in his presence. So the only sacrifice that would satisfy the justice of God, Isaiah 53, 10, was the blood of an innocent human. And Jesus was the only one who was ever innocent who reached the age of accountability for all others of sin. You see, there's salvation. But let's think about our third verse tonight. Go with me in your Bible to Luke 23, 33. 
We could use any of the gospel accounts, but I chose to use Luke 23:33 because it has a word that is found nowhere else in the Bible. It is a word that you know well. It is used in a lot of our songs. You've heard a lot of sermons about this word, but it's only found one time in your Bible, and this is the verse that uses it. Luke 23, 33, and when they were come to the place. Now, this is the crucifixion scene, and they're about to crucify Jesus. So they've left Jerusalem, crossed over the Kedron brook or, or uh, water, and they've gone back up the, the other hill. And when they were come to the place, which is called, here's our word, Calvary. Only time in the Bible. The other account you use Gogatha, which means the place of the skull. And Luke's word here is a word from, from which we get cranium. So it's the same idea as Gogatha. Um, this is an aside, but there are, there are three G's that led up to Jesus dying for us. The Garden of Gethsemane, the trial of Gabbatha is a place where Pilate met with Jesus, and then the hill of Gogatha, those three G's. There they crucified him. And the malefactor is one on the right hand and the other on the left. Malefactor is not a word we use much. Your translation might have criminal. Um, here are two men who were deemed as, to be unworthy, unfit to live among society. And they've been duly, duly processed through the court of law. And it was determined by a judge that they should die and should die a violent death on a Roman cross. And there they are, same time as Jesus. Now, they were guilty of insurrection and murder. Well, the, perhaps they were guilty as Barabbas was. Some think that they were all part of the same gang. But whatever their sins and their crimes were, they, their lives were coming to a rapid close. And if you wanted to look at the three crosses, we don't know which thief was on which side, but we know who was in the middle. Jesus was in the middle. And there is the one that we call the thief on the cross, Luke 23, 43. And then there's the other thief on the other cross that people don't talk about, but let's talk about him first. If you wanted to give one word to each cross, you could say the cross of rebellion, the cross of redemption, the cross of repentance. The cross of rebellion? The Bible says that this man railed on Jesus when they were beside each other on the cross. You know what the word railed means? To abuse with profanity. He is cursing the only man who could save him. You talk about hard-hearted? You talk about a malefactor? Inside and out. He dies with a curse on his lips. The other one did that also at the first. You know, Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Nine in the morning, got dark at 12, died at 3. Well, when you read carefully the four accounts, you find that both of them were railing on Jesus early, let's say at 10 o'clock. But at some point, this man had a change of heart. And he decided to throw himself upon the mercy of Jesus. Now, a lot of people talk about being, wanting to be saved like the thief on the cross. Is that possible? Yes. And no. It's according to what you mean by being saved like the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross did everything that the master asked him to do in order to be saved. Would a person be saved if they did the same thing? That is, do everything the master said to do? Yeah. He was penitent. Should we be penitent? Yes. <clears throat> was he a sinner without any prior knowledge to religion? Be careful how you answer that. You say, well, he didn't have time for a Bible study on that cross. Well, that, that's true. But he had a lot of time before he got to that point, right? What, have you read what he said, what he requested? Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. 
So he knew about the kingdom. And he said to the other, other thief, we indeed justly, we're suffering. So he understood justice. He understood life after death. Remember me? He's about to die. So he's, he knows there's life. And you could analyze all of his statements. You'll find that he had a pretty good bit of knowledge about religion. Did he grow up in a home where the Bible was understood and taught? Probably so. All Jewish homes are like that. Did he go astray some point? Yes. At any rate, I think I mentioned this yesterday, but if you held your Bible with the Old Testament in one hand, New Testament in the other hand, you're holding two different religions. Judaism is the Old Testament. Christianity is the New Testament. This man lived and died under the Old Testament. In fact, he might be the very last person saved under the Old Testament law. Pretty close. Because the, the law he lived under was nailed to the cross. That was beside him. Colossians 2.14. Now, Jesus is the Savior. So when Jesus told Zacchaeus or the blind man or Nicodemus or any of the interactions and conversations he had, and he referred to the person being saved. Did he have the right to save that person? Yes, he's the Savior. Could he say to the thief on the cross, you're saved? Yes. But when Jesus died, what went into effect? His will, his last will and testament. Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. And if you have a will and you have property that's mentioned in the will, can, can you give away that property? While you're alive, sure you could. But once you die, what kicks in? The will. And that property must go to whoever that will says it's to go to. So, and I preached a long time before I ever thought of this. And you're going to say, boy, that, that preacher's dumb. And you, I guess you might be right. But you know that when Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise, he had never said Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. He said that. When? Right before he went back to heaven. Forty days later. He had never said it. The church wasn't established. So a lot of things are different. The, the man indicated a, a condition of heart that we all must indicate in order to be saved. But what was required of him to be saved is different than what is required of one to be saved under the New Testament. So you have the cross of rebellion, the cross of repentance, and then the cross of redemption. And there hangs the one who has come to earth for the purpose that he is now fulfilling. I read somewhere a long time ago about a man who imagined Jesus as a boy, maybe eight years old, growing up in Nazareth. And the noise sounded around town. There's going to be a, there's going to be a crucifixion. And Jesus went out with the other boys to the edge of town. And there... A man was hanging on a cross. And in this article, the boy Jesus began to weep because he saw his future on that cross. When Jesus was in that garden of Gethsemane, you remember his prayer? Lord, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. What cup? cup of suffering. He said, don't make me drink this. Have you ever had some medicine you, you needed to take, but you really, really hated the taste of it? Or a surgery that you knew you needed, but you dreaded so badly going in the hospital to have it? That's Jesus in the garden. You see his humanity there. And then he uses one of my favorite Bible words, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There was no plan B. 
If he poured that cup out, he didn't drink it, he threw it away, went back to heaven. We would not be here tonight. But Jesus is on that cross drinking the cup. Sometimes I'll, I'll, all preachers do this. We'll preach on the crucifixion and spend the whole balance of the 30 minutes or however long talking about the stripes and the nails and the thorns and the beard being ripped out and the asphyxiation, the, the not being able to breathe, all the horrible things associated with the crucifixion. But I find it interesting that those things, as horrible as they are, are not what drew a complaint from Jesus' lips on the cross. What was it? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That hurt. First time in all eternity, which is not even a concept that I can fathom. The Father and the Son were separated. Why? Because He took our sins on Him. That's the cross of redemption. That's what the, that's what the New Testament is about. That's what the Bible's about. One more verse tonight. Go with me to Matthew 28. And let's see verse 6. You could really go to Luke's account, but I like Matthew's. You, all of them have something different to contribute to a discussion. But let's read from Matthew 28, 6. So this is when those women who loved Jesus so much, they were the last ones at the cross, the first ones at the tomb early that morning. You don't ever find a woman being hostile to Jesus in, in the entire 89 chapters of the record of his life. They followed him, they supported him, they helped him, they, well, they're there. And where would the church be in this generation or any generation without our women, without our, our sisters? Different roles than men, but devoted and capable and keeping the light of the gospel going in a community, all communities everywhere. And you see that in Matthew 28. They get up before daylight. Now, they, they couldn't come any sooner because of the Sabbath restrictions. You couldn't walk very far on the Sabbath. But they come early in the morning. When you put the different accounts together, they got up before daylight, but they got there about at daylight. Mark's account indicates the dawning of the day. But here in Matthew 28, you start in verse 1, the end of the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, Mary the other Mary, uh, to see the sepulcher, a great earthquake, literally a concussion, I'd have loved to have seen this, wouldn't you? For the angel of the Lord. Oh, the angels are back. Did you notice that? Angels were there when Jesus was born and they sang. Angels ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. Where were the angels at the cross? No angels. He did that by himself. No help. But now they're back. And rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I love that last phrase, sat on it. You know, when uh, Wade and I used to wrestle when he was little and I was big, sometimes I'd get him down and sit on him, you know. And then once he got big enough to sit on me, then I had to take it too. You know, that, that's just an indication of authority. And this angel comes down, moves the stone, and sits down. Conquered, he's conquered the stone. Now, he did not remove the stone so that Jesus could come out. He's already out. He removed the stone so the women could look in. How would they know the tomb was empty if the rock was still there? And they did look in, and there were, the tomb was empty. Well, let's see. They're, they are uh, confused about that. The angel answered and said to the women, verse 5, Fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus. What a wonderful phrase. And I'm glad you're here tonight, seeking for Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. If you're looking for Jesus in a cemetery, you're looking in the wrong place. He's not here. 
for he's risen. Now, an empty tomb does not indicate a risen Savior, but it's necessary to have a risen Savior. When the women go back and report to the disciples that the tomb's empty, they don't believe them. They're like idle tales to them. But two of them, Peter and John, run to the tomb just to see. And John runs faster. And he gets there, but he stops. And Peter's personality, as you know, is, is different. He's, he's not one to hold back anything. And he runs, and he goes right past John and runs inside the temple. Oh, the temple, the tomb. And he sees the tomb's empty. And they leave perplexed. They're not convinced. They're confused. Well, let's just stay in Matthew. I wanted to go to Luke and look at some evidences for the resurrection because everything depends upon the resurrection. But let's just stay in Matthew and we can, we can deal with enough here in a, in a small amount of time we have. Drop down verse 11. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. That is, those soldiers that were stationed out there. You know, you usually see two soldiers in the pictures they draw or paint. This is probably 16 soldiers or 20 soldiers that would be detailed to such a responsibility as this. And they also sealed the tomb. That is, they melted wax between the rock and the face of the, the hill and then put the ring uh, imprimatur in it or the insignia so that if somebody moved the stone, well, they could move it back and melt wax, but they couldn't put the signature in there so they'd know it had been tampered with. In this case, it did, that ended up not mattering, but it was known so the disciples would have been discouraged from doing it. But anyway, here it says that the watch went into the city and showed to the high priests and all things that were done, verse 11, verse 12. And when they were assembled with the elders, so they call an emergency meeting. This was the very thing they were trying to avoid. You read back in the last part of the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 27, uh, it's going to be worse if, if the disciples steal the body and they say he's resurrected. So they, they brought the... And isn't it wonderful that God's providence put those soldiers there, put that stone and sealed it? Because those are strong evidences of the resurrection. And now we know the disciples could not steal the body because the, um, the soldiers were there. Anyway, they took counsel. They gave, them large, they gave large money to the soldiers. Now, what does this tell us in the first place? It tells us that the tomb was definitely empty. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb in their confusion, and it happened to be empty, and they came away saying, well, it's, it's resurrection. But they went to the wrong, no. The enemies put the guard there. They knew what tomb it was, and the guard is the one that responded and said the tomb's empty. So we know it was the right tomb. Number two, we know that the enemies didn't steal the body. You know, that's one of the arguments made against the resurrection. In the first place, they didn't want the body moved. They were trying to keep in the grave. They wouldn't have taken it. But we'll just allow for sake of argument. But they didn't steal the body because they didn't say to the guards, Shh, we know, we know, we got the body. No. They paid them large money, the King James has, a lot of money to tell a lie. What was the lie? The lie was that the disciples came and stole the body. Now, this is it. There are a couple of interesting things here. Verse 13, his disciples came by night. Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole the body away while we slept. Now, think about that for a minute. Sleeping witnesses. How do they know who stole the body if they were asleep? Well, Verse 14, if it come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Verse 15, it's commonly reported among the Jews to this day, Matthew says. Matthew wrote about 20 years after the resurrection. So 20 years later, they were still telling the lie that the disciples stole the body. And 2,000 years later, they're still telling that lie, aren't they? Well, you know what? I, mean, I know our time's up. Let me just throw this out there. When Peter got up to preach on the day of Pentecost with the other apostles, what city was he in? Jerusalem. Just down the street from where Jesus had been condemned in the kangaroo court that night. Just up the hill from the side of the crucifixion. 
with those same enemies still in office, still in town. And he got up and preached, Ye by wicked hands have taken and crucified Lord of the Lord of glory, Acts 2.22. But God raised him from the dead. Now, if the, if the enemies knew that the disciples stole the body, if they had the body, wait a minute, whoa, 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 Peter, back here. Come follow us, we gotta show you. We gotta show you the body. Now, if the disciples stole it, did you know they died martyrs' deaths? Never not one of them ever recanted that truth. Do you remember the Watergate scandal? You know how long they could hold it together? Two weeks. They started singing like canaries on one another to save their skin. The disciples lasted for, the, for lifetimes, the rest of their lifetime, and never recanted. There's the first four of the verses. We'll go faster tomorrow night, but you can't rush through the incarnation, salvation offered by Jesus, the crucifixion and the resurrection. I want to ask you tonight, what is your relationship to those four facts? Or maybe I should say toward the one those four facts are about. Are you a Christian tonight? A Christian just means a follower of Jesus. You say... I want to be. Okay, well, here's how to do it in a nutshell. And if you want to study this further, I'm in town till Thursday. You have preachers and members here that would stay the rest of the night if necessary or make an appointment tomorrow to talk about these things. But here it is. Maybe you've already been studying it to some degree and you're ready, but here it is. Hear the gospel. We've talked about the gospel tonight, the good news. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Do you believe he was um, just a man? Or you're not ready to do the other steps? But if you believe he's the son of God, as we've talked about tonight, the third step is repent of sin. It's not a word we use much, but it, it means change. Change the mind, producing a change of behavior. Whatever sins I've been committing, I don't do those on purpose anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to live for him. Confession is just saying out loud what you believe in your heart. How would we know if you believe in Jesus if you didn't say it? Matthew 10, 32. Go down into the water. So it's almost like the ham was made for this purpose, isn't it? Go down into the water and your sins will be washed away, not by the water, by the blood. Because that's where God in heaven applies the blood of His Son to the sin of a soul. Romans 6, 3 and 4. And be resurrected to walk in newness of life. You could do that tonight. If you haven't been a faithful Christian and you've been reminded tonight of what your life is really all about, say, I want to rededicate my life to Jesus. I want to be forgiven of sins. Thankfully, He lets us come home. And you could do that tonight. Will you come? We'll stand as we sing.